Vaya con Dios! Welcome to the latest edition of the George Sanders Show. Today we will be talking about two bullet-packed features, uh, 1950's Gun Crazy from director Joseph H. Lewis and Catherine Bigelow's 1991 film Point Break starring Keanu Reeves. Uh, we'll also be discussing the career of Keanu, uh, the singular career of Keanu. <laughs> I think it can be called. Uh, and then also picking our Cinema Essential picks for best adrenaline films. With me, as always, is Sean Gilman. Hi, Sean. Doesn't Viacondios mean goodbye? Yeah, but what better way to start the show? Well, I mean, literally, it means, like, go with God, but... And you're here with me, so there you go. Ad- ad- adios. <laughs> I just couldn't kind of say it at the end of the show. You could. <laughs> well, with that, let's go with God... Into gun crazy. What a joint. No more hot water. Well, it's a roof anyway. Yeah, it's a roof, all right. What are you going to give the room clerk for money when we move out? I can still get that job at Remington. Forty dollars a week? We can get by on that. Yeah, maybe you can, but not me. It's too slow, Bob. I want to do a little living. What's your idea of living? It's not forty bucks a week. Tell me, when did you get this idea? Oh, I've always had it. Ever since I can remember. If I don't get it one way, I'll get it the other. I didn't think we'd had it figured out that way. Well, so I've changed my mind. I told you I was no good. I didn't kid you, did I? Well, now you know. But I've been kicked around all my life. And from now on, I'm going to start kicking back. What is it you want? When are you going to begin to live? Four years in reform school, then the army? I should think they'd owe you something for a change. What's it got you being so particular? Look, let's not argue. I'll... I'll hock my guns. Give us enough dough to make another start. There isn't enough money in those guns for the kind of start I want. But I want things, a lot of things, big things. I don't want to be afraid of life or anything else. I want a guy with spirit and guts. A guy who can laugh at anything or do anything. A guy who can kick over the traces and win the world for me. Look, I don't want to look in that mirror and see nothing but a a stick-up man staring back at me. You better kiss me goodbye, Bart. Because I won't be here when you get back. All right, that was a clip from Joseph H. Lewis's 1950 film Gun Crazy, starring John Dahl and Peggy Cummins, in which Dahl plays Barton Tare, a young man who's a big fan of guns, and he's an expert sharpshooter. And one day, back from uh, retired from the army after the war, he uh, he goes to a carnival and meets a girl who is also just as big a fan of guns as he is. The two fall in love and set off on a crime spree that ends in disaster for both of them. A lot of people, when they think of film noirs, think of them as as B-movies, as these kind of, as low-budget, kind of scuzzily reputed films that, uh, that didn't get a lot of respect at the time. And that's true for a movie like Gun Crazy, but it's not true for what m- most people think of as films noir and movies like Double Indemnity or Out of the Past or really A-pictures with big stars and big directors and and reasonably sized studio production budgets. That is not the case with, with Gun Crazy. Uh, Joseph A. Lewis was a, a Poverty Row director. Dahl and Cummins are not 
stars by any means. And his screenplay is co-written by somebody who was um, blacklisted, Dalton Trumbo. As such, it, <laughs> Gun Crazy is, uh, is a great example of, of a true B-noir. And my question for you, Mike, is how do you think it holds up to those A pictures, the ones with the, the bigger reps and the Oscar nominations? I think it holds up miraculously well. Since it's a B picture and since they are limited, uh, at least in terms of production values and um, money that could be spent on it, uh, there's a exhilaration to it. There's, you know, it feels like, you know, certain shots where this is the only chance we're going to get to get this shot. <laughs> we got to do it now. We got to do, you know, um, famously the, uh, I mean, I think we'll come back to this, but the, uh, the shot of the one shot of the heist, you know, shot from the back of the car. I don't think you're going to see that in something like double indemnity or, or something of its ilk, you know what I mean? Where it's, it's much more, uh, you know, I don't want to say Billy Wilder's stayed in comparison to something like this, but it, it's those are more a little more conventional, so to speak. And this really uses... they're, they're more they're more studio bound. Exactly. Whereas the the low budget kind of forces Lewis and his cast out into the street and and literally in the street. I mean, they, yeah. you know, they're they're looking for a parking space. You know, <laughs> you know, um, and yeah, I, I thought that. Part of the the joy of this movie um, is is that you know B nature of it forces them um, to really push for you know as much as they can to you know squeeze it all out and I think it works like a charm I think it's great. Yeah, uh, Jean Le Cadard, uh, who was a big fan of of Gone Crazy, as were the rest of the the new wave critics, uh, famously said that all you need for a movie is a girl and a gun, and this to me is a is one of the best examples of that of that idea because that's really all there is in this movie is there's a gun and there's a girl. Yeah, and there are a lot of guns. Like, I mean, <laughs> it's, but only one girl. There's a, there's only one girl. Although I really liked the uh, the older sister of John Dahl. Yeah, yeah, she was pretty hot. Um, <laughs> um, the uh, yeah, the, I love. The opening prologue that shows kind of gives a little backstory to John Dahl's character as him as a kid. The movie starts with this great shot in the rain of a street corner, um, and it's shot from inside like a general store or some sort of store, and there's prominently displayed in the window is a uh, revolver. And we see a young version of Dahl's character come out through the rain, throw a brick through the window, and grab the gun. Um, just because he loves guns so much. Um, and then they go to great lengths to show that despite his love for, for weapons, he, he doesn't like to kill. You know, they show um, his sister and his friends um, attesting to the judge, because he gets caught stealing the gun, uh, that, you know, he is incapable of harming anything because he had a, you know, pivotal right. experience. His his attraction to guns isn't about killing things. No, it's he's about not, marksmanship. He's, not a, he's but... not a psychopath. Exactly. It, there's something else about the gun that appeals to him. Well, he's really good at shooting it. You know, I think <laughs> I think that's part of it. And yeah, he he likes the the skill, as it were. You know, people you know people use guns for sport. You know, and he's really as as shown later when he does meet up um, with Cummins at the uh, carnival. You know, he's. Yeah. He's a crack shot. Yeah, the young the young Bart is uh, is played by Russ Hamblin. Right. As, as a child who was he was still active. He was in uh, Django Unchained just last year. Uh, yeah, he's in West Side Story, Some Brides of Some Brothers, Twin Peaks. 
Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, he does a great job. And uh, actually, one of the things I liked about the movie, I mean, a minor thing, but um, I really liked the casting of the young and adult versions of, of all three of the uh, characters. There's Dahl and then his two friends, his two buddies, yeah. one of which grows up to be um, sheriff and the other grows up to be a uh, newspaperman, a journalist at the local newspaper. Yeah. Um, and, the, you know, there are these superficial things that tie them together. You know, the, the, the one that becomes the journalist, you know, he wears these black rim glasses and he's wearing them later. But I thought they really, you know, captured this, this you know, these characters even though they're played by different people. What do you think of John Dahl? He's, I think he's, he's pretty he's much great. just known for this and uh, and rope. I think he's fantastic. He's one of my favorite things about the picture. Um, he, you know, he's playing a very different character than he played in rope. Cause, yes, because uh, the Hitchcock movie from 1948, in which he and uh, and Farley Granger kill their friend and then have a, a dinner party with the the body in the in a box in the center of the room. And in in rope, he's he's very talkative. He, he's um, he, he's always philosophizing and rationalizing. And he's very cynical and and kind of snide and sly. And and he's a very different character here in Gun Crazy. Yeah, he part of it is the the writing and the creation of the character. You know, where they like I said, they kind of imbue him with this kind of humane nature. Um, but he also plays it really well. Where. I, I really feel for the guy throughout the movie. And, you know, you see him, you know, he's committing these um, robberies and he's, you know, he's obviously a criminal and that this is his life, the path he's chosen. But I sympathize with him every step of the way. In well, he, he plays it as an addiction. He's addicted to, to guns and he's addicted to, to Peggy Cummins. And, and you always can tell that he's, even though he's in the thick of it, he's, he doesn't belong in it. Unlike her, where she, that's kind of like her existence. And yeah, she, she, is, she is the, the femme fatale. She is... Deadly is the female. Deadly is the female <laughs> is the, the original title for the film. And she is that. So this film is, is rife with all kinds of, of psychological interpretations that can be gleaned from it. I, I wonder what your take is. What, do the, the, what does the gun craziness represent? Well... How do you read the film? How do I read the film? It, it's, uh, you know, it's not to dismiss your question. <laughs> um, and, yeah, there are tons of ways you could pick this thing apart um, in terms of psychological, you know, ramifications of what does the gun represent and, and you know, what is, what is the opinion of women in this movie? But for me, I don't want to forget that, for me, I actually really... Um, just made an emotional connection. Um, and I actually think this is a really sad movie. Like, most films noir, like, I I don't really have an emotional engagement with the characters. You kind of, you know, you, you go into that world, but you're still removed from it a little bit. But, like, um, not just Doll, but their relationship to each other. Like, they really love each other, and I find it um, really sweet. Um I, I would you not disagree? describe their relationship as as loving. No, I th- I totally think they love each other. Like the, when they decide after their their big heist to go their separate ways, and they get into two separate getaway cars, 
And it's beautiful as they, they're driving opposite directions and we see shots of both of them turn to look at each other and they both pull a U-turn and they go and they get back in the car together and they snuggle. It's really cute. And that, that, that is, it's lovely, but it's, it's these two lunatics who cannot, cannot be apart and they like physically cannot be apart. And that's not exactly love. I, it is not a romantic movie. No, it, it's not romantic at all, but, um, but the fact that they found each other, even though they're both lunatics and yes, their lives are self-destructive, um, and not just self-destructive, it's just destructive. I mean, she, she kills several people. Um, and then they ultimately kill each other. <laughs> but, but, um, to me, that kind of, that is really what I grasp, grasp with this movie as opposed to um, the psychological underpinnings of it, um, which are there and I think are interesting. Um, but for me, like, when it comes to them in the fog at the end, I, you know, you, and you know how it's going to end. I mean, we, you know how this movie's going to end the minute it starts, really, basically. Sure. But um, I was really emotionally, uh, you know, distraught and kind of sad at the end of this movie. It's well, a, I think I think I don't think a lot of the, the credit for that goes to to Lewis, yeah, who is is uh, such a, a master at at setting a scene and, and creating this unique environment and mm-hmm. for for all of the actions, not just the, the robberies, but that, that, that final sequence when they're like in the, in a swamp on the top of a mountain, like what, since when are there swamps on the tops of mountains? <laughs> it doesn't matter. They're, it doesn't matter. They're, they're shrouded in fog right. on this little tiny Island with all of the, the, uh, the law coming after them and they're alone and desperate and, and they're yeah, clinging to each you, other. You can't help but feel sorry for these murderers. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I mean, I, I really, I really felt. You know, what it kind of reminded me of, and it's it's a flawed movie. So I, and not not this, but um, Natural Born Killers. Um, yeah, this, which is, is obviously an influence on Tarantino's, I think, original script for what he wanted. Yeah, well, I think Gun Crazy is like an adaptation of the Bonnie and Clyde story, which is right. is repeats throughout throughout film and also throughout culture when you have. Uh, uh, Charles Starkweather, um, who was the basis for Terrence Malick's Badlands, which is another right. guy and girl. Well, and I think Tarantino has said, I think one of the first times I heard about Gun Crazy was in some, you know, Tarantino list or some sort of thing, and he called it the greatest movie ever or something like that, you know. Um, yeah, he said that. Tarantino has <laughs> said that a lot about a lot, about a lot of movies. Well, I know. I mean, he's, he's you know, hyperbole is, you know, part of his racket, but still. Yeah. Um, but no, I really... You know, they're bad people, or at least I. she's clearly worse than he is, um, although he's totally culpable here for everything. And yet, like I said, I really thought there was a connection between them, and I really bought it, and I, and I despite the, you know, terrible nature of everything that's surrounding them and all the things that they're doing, I found them really cute. Maybe that says something about me psychologically. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think uh, we'll, we we best not uh, delve into that. <laughs> I think you know, talking about it as a as a Bonnie and Clyde story, I think it's it's uh, it's productive to compare it to Bonnie and Clyde, the Warren Beatty, mm-hmm. Faye Dunaway movie, because that film I think gives a gives a very clear reading of what it thinks the gun mm-hmm. represents, mm-hmm. and in in the the Warren Beatty film. 
his his Clyde is impotent, and so this drive to you know use guns to to uh, rob banks. There's a compensation for the the impotence and his inability to uh, have a sexual relationship with Faye Dunaway. That's not the case in Gun Crazy. In in fact, it's the opposite. It's the the use of guns and the fact that Peggy Cummins knows how to use guns and knows how to shoot. That's what turns John Dahl on. So it's it's kind of an inversion of this idea that that violence is a, a result of impotence. It's it's Bonnie and Clyde gives a, a much more conservative reading of of how violence works, whereas Gun Crazy says you know violence itself is the turn on, mm-hmm. which is much more disturbing. I I like it more. <laughs> yeah, As, especially coming out of a, a a culture coming out of World War II and. World War II hangs over this movie as I think it hangs over every movie of the late 1940s and 1950s. And I, I, I don't think the, the impact of World War II on the psychology of a whole generation of people all over the world can be underestimated. And Well, we it was have, a world war. Yeah. <laughs> and not just you know the generation of people that fought in it, but the generation of, of the, the children who grew up with parents who, who fought in the war. Um, I just watched uh, Days of Being Wild again last night, and that movie set in 1960, and it doesn't mention the war at all, but it, its main character is adopted, and he, he would have been born right as the Japanese were invading China. And so it's hard for me not to see this, the kind of apathy and nihilism of this whole generation of, of youth in Hong Kong as a direct result of World War II. But that's a digression. Um, <laughs> Uh, in, in Gun Crazy, you, you have this, this marksman who like finally found his calling in the army, in the war, teaching people how to shoot. Sure. Uh, but that wasn't enough for him. Like he, he quits the army because it was boring just teaching people how to shoot. He wanted to do it for real, but he couldn't actually admit it until he saw, he met Peggy Cummins and she kind of unlocked this, this urge but he didn't, you know, I think the movie goes to great pains to show that he doesn't really want to, he doesn't want to shoot people. I mean, he, you know, he, there's the, she's driving the car on the getaway and there are the cops and he has this breakdown because he right. cannot. It's not, it's not the actual killing that he likes. Yeah. He feels bad. He's conflicted. That's what makes him such a compelling protagonist is he doesn't want to kill people, but he does want to shoot them. <laughs> sure. Okay. I can buy that. And for... For him, I think the gun, the gun is not about it's not about sex. It's it's about power, mm-hmm. and the two are not unrelated. But he he's uh, raised by his sister. Mm-hmm. His parents are dead, and he just clings to his guns. Like the the guns give him a sense of control over the world, a sense of power, and he does not let that go as he as he grows up. Yeah. Well, and even even when he wants. You know, even when he flirts with the idea of a normal life or, you know, more normal than the life that he's, you know, living at the moment, the only job he can think of doing is working for a gun manufacturer. Right. You know, he wants to work for Remington or, or one of those. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's entire, I mean, that's his entire existence is the gun. Yeah. And, and. So this this leads us back to to World War II again, and this whole kind of crisis with returning veterans when they come back from the war, and they suddenly find themselves with much less power. Not just you know in general, they're no longer able to kill people, right? Uh, but just in the home, where women have gotten jobs during the war, and they're much more independent, and 
there's this kind of feeling of, of impotence of a whole generation of men when they come back to the war. And then uh, we talked about that a bit when we talked about the big heat way back in episode one. Uh, the Phantom Menace. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, you know, there's there's that whole level of the, the power dynamic with the guns and the, and the Dahl-Cummins relationship as well. What do you think about... Uh, we've talked about a lot about Dahl, but what do you think about Cummins, um, her performance, her character? Because she's, you know... I think she's much less complex. I think so, too. Uh, I think there are there are attempts to make her a more complicated figure where she, you know, a, a, attempts to, to justify her killing people as, as her own fear. I don't know that I entirely believe her. Like, it's it's hard to say if she's, if she's lying or if... She which, really is afraid. Which I, I actually find that kind of interesting. And watching the movie as as they're going about their their business, it's obvious that he's head over heels in love with her. You're not quite sure about her. Um, you know, he might just be an escape for her and stuff. Um, and I kind of liked how it kept me guessing on, um, with that. And I did really like. There's a moment near the end when they are basically, it's right before the final chase, and they have lost everything. The, the feds are on to them. They hop to train. They end up back at his sister's house, and they come up to the property, and before they go inside, they look in the window, and they see you know, his sister with her four or five kids. She's cooking dinner, and they see this tranquil life or whatever, and there's a quick shot to Cummins' face, and there's a, there's a look of jealousy there because... She, she kind of despises his sister for everything that she represents, but she also kind of wants that too, but she doesn't know how to get that. And it's shown in a hilarious moment, um, which is, I think, really telling when they have to leave that house after they've stayed there for a little while and she steals the baby. Like right. they won't shoot us if we have a yeah, baby. <laughs> yeah, I just stole your niece or your nephew or whatever. You know, yeah. let's go. And he's like, "You can't do that." And she's like, "Why not?" <laughs> you know, which I think is really great. Um, so while I think Dahl is the much more interesting character in the film, I think there are things about her character and the way that she's portrayed that um, are really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, she is she is this this World War II era woman. She is she's independent. So we we first see her. She's wearing pants. She wears slacks at the brief you know job that they have before they rob the meatpacking plant. Yeah. And she has a job. Yeah. Uh, and I I think I think she really does. She really is attracted to Doll. I don't think she's she's just using him. And what she's attracted to is that he's a man. Like he is a better shooter than she is. And she likes that about him. She's attracted to his power. Well, she says as much when, you know, because there's this brief uh, period where the owner of the carnival, mm-hmm. you know, wants, he's in love with her. He wants her. Right. Um, and, but she's obviously going for doll and he, but the carnival uh, owner comes in and she kind of dismisses him and poo-poos him because he's not a man. And she right. says that, I yeah. think, you know, or something to that effect. Yeah, like of course you're afraid of him. He's a man, right? <laughs> and then, and then, lo and behold, Doll comes in and you know shoots a gun, you know, uh, bullet whizzing past his face. You know, if we read this as this this kind of uh, post World War II metaphor, she's an independent woman, 
but she's attracted to the more powerful man who will put her in a more subservient position again, but she doesn't want that life. So her conflict is is between her own independence and the fact that she's attracted to a man who was more powerful than her. Yeah, so um, there are a couple times in the movie where the idea of settling down comes up. And um, at first she she really bristles at the thought, but then she starts to kind of think about it and she says, yeah, that'll be good after one more heist or whatever. But you can tell... Right, there's always one more heist. There's always one more heist, you know. Even if they fleed to Mexico like they planned and it went fine, they would be, you know, robbing banks in Mexico City. The the quiet life isn't fast enough for her. Yeah, there's no way she'll ever She needs the... You know, getting into to Point Break and kind of the theme of this episode, she needs the adrenaline rush, the mm-hmm. the the actual like expression of of power over other human beings. Before we move on, I just want to say a, a little bit more about Joseph Lewis. Joseph H. Lewis, he was uh, a Poverty Row director, kind of making really low budget westerns and, and crime movies throughout the nineteen forties, and he ended his career working in television. He directed like. You know, fifty episodes of The Rifleman. I've only seen a couple of his movies. The one, the one that I would I would really recommend in addition to Gun Crazy is The Big Combo, which uh, which stars Richard Conti, who we just saw a couple weeks ago in in Whirlpool. Big Combo is is one of the the more beautiful films noir ever, just with the uh, use of shadows and light. It's it's a it's just a terrific uh, crime movie. Yeah, well, so speaking of shadows, um, you know, right before you know, summing this up. Um, the filmmaking here, you know, as we touched on briefly in the beginning, is is really fantastic. And there's, you know, some great camera shots um, in the beginning. You know, there's a it, there's like a series of shots in a row where it pans in, pans out, pans in, pans out at that um, the, the general store that he breaks into. Um, but there's also that great scene when they are the one kind of scene where they're living high on the hog. Most of the movie, they're desperate. They're totally desperate. You know, they're living from job Right, there's to like the, the montage of them like going to all the fancy clubs. And, and yeah, stuff. and they go to this dance hall, and they're dancing, and she's wearing a mink coat, and it's, it's really nice. Um, and they're having this idyllic moment, and then they realize, oh, the feds are on to us, and they're right outside. And they go through this really well-lit, you know, gay club, you know, and then they go out the back door and just plunge right into shadow. I mean, it's just pitch black and it's yeah. really awesome looking at seeing them running down this corridor and she loses her, you know, mink coat, and, which is kind of a sign that they're not going to, you know, have this great life. And it's really fantastic. Yeah. I mean, we kind of touched on the, on the famous tracking shots and, and I don't know that there's a lot we can, we really have to say about it. Like he just watch it. If you watch the movie, <laughs> you, you can't, you can't miss it. It's this, it's phenomenal. Movie. The whole robbery plays out from the back of a car as as she's like as we're waiting for um, John Dahl to rob the bank and the actual dialogue as they're driving up to the bank was was improvised. They just kind of set up the camera in the back there and told the actress to go. Yeah, it's a terrific shot. It's, it's amazing. It's a it's a textbook example of the influence of kind of neorealism on American film noir. Uh, because you do have a camera out in the streets and you're chronicling a real situation in real time. And that's, you know, the whole point of a tracking shot is to do that. It's not something that you would create in a studio. It would look, it would look terrible. Yeah. It would look horrible. Like a rear projection. and uh, It would be awful. Yeah. And it's funny because there is rear projection earlier in the movie um, as it shows a montage of them like at like, you know, a waterfall and, you know, going on their first couple of dates and stuff, which works for that moment because it's kind of this you know fantasy moment where they're having you know they're young and in love and stuff but yeah then it goes straight to this you know down on the streets nitty-gritty thing and it's just awesome yeah 
<laughs> so that is uh, that is gun crazy. We are going to uh, take a little break now and listen to uh, broken. We're going to listen to broken strings. This song is called "Stolen Car." Okay, that was Stolen Car from Broken Strings off their self-titled uh, album. Broken Strings is a one-man band. Uh, my best friend Adam, who I've known since I was 13 years old, we grew up together, went to high school, and played music together for about 10 years uh, and spent basically every day of our lives together. And then I moved to Seattle, and then the bastard went ahead and recorded an album in his parents' uh, living room. Uh, that's better than anything I will ever accomplish in my life. And so we're listening to that today. So thanks, Adam. And now we're talking about news. There's not much going on. Yeah, we're kind of in the uh, the dog days of summer where even the, the blockbusters are lazy. <laughs> that's right. Um, so we're going to turn the focus onto us for a minute here um, and maybe kind of give you a heads up for what's coming down the pipeline with the show. Um, next week we're going to do... Um, Sons of the Desert and Ishtar, tying in with a series that's coming up uh, at the Sith Cinema in Seattle. Uh, there's going to be a slapstick uh, series that I'm spending the entire week at. It's going to be awesome. And also, Ishtar just came out on Blu-ray, and I will take any opportunity I can to make a person watch Ishtar, so I'm very excited that Mike's now going to have to watch it. That's right. I'm holding the Blu-ray that, Sh- that Sean owns in my hand at this moment. Um, and then the week after the 30th, we're going to talk about Wong Kar Wai's The Grand Master, and we're pairing that with A Touch of Zen. Um, and then the 6th of September, this is really what we wanted to talk about, kind of give a heads up for it, is it's going to be a different kind of show um, than what we usually do. Sean, do you want to tell us? What we're doing? Yeah, every every year for the last five years or so around around Labor Day, I've made a, a list of my favorite movies of all time. And it started as like a, a top 100, and then it gradually got bigger. It was like a top 250, and then there was a top 600, and then there was a top 1,000. And that just got kind of excessive. So last year, around the time of the, the Sight and Sound poll, I decided to just do a, a top 10. On the theory that, you know, if I had a sight and sound ballot, which I'm sure that my 2012 <laughs> or 2022 one will uh, 
it's in the it's, mail. It's in the mail. Yeah. The the movies that I would that I would pick on that, which means it's not strictly like my top ten favorite movies or my top ten best movies, but it's the ten movies that I would want to represent in a sight and sound poll. And then for the rest of the top 100, I filled it out just by randomly assigning numbers to a set of like 600 movies. And the movies that, that spat out became my 11 through 100. And I thought that was a really interesting list. It was much more interesting than the, the top 100s that I had been doing because it would you know pick things that were a little more idiosyncratic, a little more representative of my taste than just you know The Godfather and The Godfather 2 and all these movies sure. that... You know that I love; they're great movies, but everyone else loves them too. So, right. uh, what we're going to do for this Labor Day is we're going to do just the top ten part of that, and we're going to pick our kind of uh, sight and sound ballots of, of what we would do if we were asked to submit a ballot this year. Yes, if there was a ballot this year. Right. <laughs> yeah, I look forward to it. Um, I, I don't exactly know what I'm going to do yet because I did the same thing. I did a, a top ten when the sight and sound poll came out. Um, I might just get lazy and do that again. Who knows? Yeah, I'm thinking I'm going to exclude the 10 that I used last year Mm -hmm. and just have 10 new ones. And then, you know, if I do this every year for 10 years, when the next Sight and Sound button comes around, I've got 100 right there. Right there. Your work's already done. Um, And we'd love to hear if anybody else wants to chime in um, in advance with their top 10 or their, you know, something or one movie, you know, that they think should be. Um, included on a list like that, um, you know, you've got a couple weeks to get a hold of us on the Twitter, Geo Sanders Show, um, or email at uh, the George Sanders Show at gmail dot com. Yeah, uh, let us know because we like talking about movies. Uh, <laughs> you know, you should start in a movie. I, I got a movie for you, Sean. Okay, you're gonna start in a movie called Movie Crazy. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to delve into the psychology of that. <laughs> Other than that, I, yeah, I guess there's not much else going on. So. Let's let's move on to our cinema central for this week, which is uh, adrenaline movies or adrenalizing movies, which is uh, kind of inspired by by Point Break, which is the movie that your brother forced us to review this week. He did. He actually lent me one of his two copies of the film, uh, and the copy I watched was, I believe, it was called the uh, Extreme Adrenaline Edition of Point Break. So. It's quite apropos that we're picking adrenaline films right now. Yeah, because one one of the lines in the film is that the 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 bad guys are adrenaline junkies, right. which is a, a phrase that's since been ascribed to to all of Catherine Bigelow's films. Is as basically she's making movies about adrenaline junkies. So mm-hmm. we wanted to to talk about the movies that made us feel like adrenaline junkies. That's right. For me, there were a couple of things that came to mind initially, but. As it seems as often with this show, the one that kind of lingered was the one I remember from when I was a kid or when I, you know um, when I was younger. And this came out around the same time uh, as Point Break, and I haven't seen it since. It's been twenty years, um, but I'm picking uh, The Fugitive from 1993. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, the, the 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 movie version of the uh, TV show uh, and starring uh, Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones. And it's directed by uh, Andrew Davis. And I, like I said, I haven't seen it in 20 years, but um, I have a very distinct memory of seeing it in the theater and it was packed. And it was one of those movies where you could tell, like, you could feel everybody tensing up while you're watching it, um, especially particular scenes, you know. Um, but it was also, I think, the first time that I had ever been in a movie theater that when the credits came up, people started clapping. 
And I was 11 years old at the time, and I still thought that was a stupid thing to do because who are you clapping for? Harrison Ford's not there. Um, uh, but it just showed that people were, you know, on board with The Fugitive. Um, and it's actually, coincidentally, I didn't know this, or maybe I did, but I, I forgot, but it's actually playing next week um, as part of the 2020 series at the Grand Illusion in oh. Seattle. Um, they're kind of revisiting movies from 20 years ago. I think they did Dave recently, and they, you know, they do a bunch of stuff. Yeah, they, they, uh, they play movies from 20 years ago throughout the year, and then at the end of the year, they, they like redo the Oscars with, with uh, who they would vote for 20 years later right. with some perspective. Hence the 2020 title. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like I said, my memory of The Fugitive is mostly visceral, um, which goes into the fact that it's adrenaline. You know, I mean, it's basically a two hour long chase. Um, you know, Tommy Lee Jones's U.S. Marshal is chasing uh, the wrongly accused Harrison Ford um, who wants to clear his name and find the killer of his wife. Right. He didn't kill his wife. It was a one armed man. Right. Yeah. I, it, it looks like you're not a big fan of The Fugitive. It's fine. It's okay. <laughs> it's uh, it's got a great uh, uh, train crash yeah. at, the, at the beginning. Uh, yeah, it's it's okay. I I'm speaking for my 11 year old self here, so I yeah. I'm interested to revisit it. I think you know. I think it was you know, 11 year old me thought Ishtar was the greatest movie of all time. So you still think that? So there you go. <laughs> uh, what is your pick, Sean, for the cinema essential? adrenaline film. This this was actually a, a kind of a tough one for me because I wanted to. I didn't want to pick a Hong Kong movie because I, I've talked a lot about Hong Kong movies on the show, and it seems like for every essential I pick mm-hmm. a Hong Kong movie. Mm-hmm. And I also didn't really want to pick an action movie because, you know, getting back to the psychology of gun crazy, it kind of disturbed me that the movies that we think of as like the adrenaline pumping ones are are the ones where lots of people like get shot or run around mm-hmm. and punch people and. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it seems there should be more productive ways of, of getting our adrenaline rush than violence. So what I ended up going with is a short film by Guy Madden called The Heart of the World. Ooh, that's a good pick. Uh, that's a great pick. It's from 2000. It's only six minutes long, and it was actually made as a, as part of like a, a, a series of short films that introduced the Toronto Film Festival that year. And it's uh, it's really hard to describe. <laughs> it is really hard to describe. But it's basically it's a silent movie with like this this like driving symphonic soundtrack that's kind of in this in the style of Soviet montage. But it's this sci-fi story about this woman who has to like invent a machine to go save the Earth's core from exploding and killing everyone, more or less. More. But just the 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 rhythm of it and the editing and just like the flashes of, of, of style and all of these different characters and this uh, ideology of this kind of romance at the heart of it as she's in this love triangle and she's also trying to save the world and yeah there's just so much going on on it in it that it's it's just so exciting to watch it and it's it's you know everything that I want movies to be to you know excite me about cinema is in this six minutes short yeah it's it's phenomenal i saw it um as part of a package show that was run at the northwest film forum maybe six seven years ago um and it was it was a package of like up and coming uh filmmakers and they they showed like shorts from miranda july and mike mills and and all kind of that ilk of people and you know a lot of it was really hit or miss but i think i think they closed with uh heart of the world and it blew everything that came before it out of the water. I mean, it was just, I mean, it was amazing. It's a fantastic, 
fantastic short. And it's available on YouTube, I think. It's oh, easily yeah. found. Yeah, it's uh, Piece of Cake Time. We'll link to it in the notes of the show. But Guy Madden is... Uh, I think Guy Madden's a, a great filmmaker. He's, he's one of my favorites. Um, but at times, his style can be a, a bit much to take at feature length. But a six-minute short is absolutely perfect. Yeah. It's, it's a wonderful pick. I, I lose this week. I'll tell you that much. Um, it's, not, it's not a competition. It's not a, it's not what, a war. really? I didn't get that memo. Um, so segueing uh, from that... From the, the high energy of the adrenaline rush to the high energy acting style of <laughs> Mr. Keanu Reeves. Right. The star of Point Break and the subject of our person of the week this week. Um, we were originally going to do Catherine Bigelow, but... Um, since I'm an abject failure, and I really haven't seen many of Bigelow's films, um, mostly because I don't gravitate towards action films. Um, and then her, her recent few, um, you know, war films, that I'm also not a big fan of war films. I really do want to see Zero Dark Thirty um, and The Hurt Locker, yeah, sure, sometime. Um, but I just don't know enough about her, and I, I feel, you know, that's a failing on my part. So we are going to go with someone that I know a little bit more about, and that's Keanu Reeves. <laughs> So tell me about your first uh, your first impressions of Keanu. I assume was Bill and Ted. It was Bill and Ted. Bill and Ted had a huge effect on me um, as a kid. It, I, I that mean, is so not surprising. It, it really did. I actually had um, baseball cap, a red baseball cap from Little League. Um, I was on the Angels, I think, one year in Little League, and I had a red baseball cap that I wrote Wild Stallions on and wore backwards for like six months um, because I wanted to be Bill S. Preston. And I, th- I think the Bill and Ted movies, I think they're the they're really good movies, first of all. I, I think they hold I, up. I agree. I think they're, they're both really great. They're really fantastic. The sequel's just as good as the, or better than the original. And I think it's probably the quintessential Keanu role. I think he's never been better than he is in the Bill and Ted movies. It really plays to his strengths. Um, as an actor, I don't. Well, you haven't seen The Matrix. I still haven't seen The Matrix. It's true. I don't think Keanu is a good actor. <laughs> I, I think he's a good presence. I really, I, I like Keanu a lot when I see him. And when I was watching Point Break, it's one of those things where you're watching it and you're like, "That's an odd choice. Why did he? Why did he say it like that?" Um, but you're still kind of compelled to follow him, and you kind of like him. And I, I actually really like Keanu Reeves. <laughs> Yeah, he's he's odd because he doesn't. He's not charming. No, he's not funny. No, he's not uh, emotive. No, at all. There's not a lot to relate to with Keanu Reeves, but he is very pretty. Maybe that's it. But yeah, I don't know. He's. A, I, I think you know. Speaking My, of Bill Ted, uh, I think Alex Winter, you know, is is a really good comedic actor, and he. I think he carries more of the weight in the Bill and Ted franchise. Yeah, I mean, I I would hesitate to say that Keanu is is a bad actor because you know I don't I don't know anything about acting and I I like Keanu Reeves. Uh, he is at times really bad <laughs> or at least really mismatched for a part. Like he's in uh, he's in Dangerous Liaisons, and there is nothing about Keanu Reeves that says 18th century France. Right. And he's terrible in it. Yeah. And the same with, with Kenneth Branagh's version of Much Ado About Nothing. He's he's just awful. He's out of place. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola uses that kind of Keanu-ness to great effect in his version of Dracula, where he's playing just kind of the, the dopey hero guy, and uh, he brings out the kind of uh, 
the lameness in, in Bram Stoker's hero. Mm-hmm. I don't know how intentional that is on Keanu's part. <laughs> right. But, but Coppola at least, you know, know, knows how to use him. Sure. Keanu kind of started in these smaller movies and, uh, he started, I think the earliest movie I've seen him in is the river's edge, which is this kind of re- weird, dark indie comedy from like 1987 with Dennis Hopper and, and Crispin Glover. And then he does like the Bill and Ted's movies. He had a, a part in the parenthood movie. Uh, it's not really until Point Break that he becomes an action star. And uh, I was watching, you know, some of the special features on the Point Break Blu-ray, and apparently Catherine Bigelow was the only one who wanted Keanu for the part. Oh, really? Yeah, because he he because he had he, proven himself. Yeah, he yeah. he was not an, an action hero before that. We think of him now, Speed, and The Matrix, and Keanu Reeves is an action star. But it wasn't until Point Break that that happened, and I think you know. His blankness helps in action movies in the same way that, like, Jean-Claude Van Damme's blankness helps in his action movies because it becomes more about, like, the physical movements of the actors than, you know, any, any kind of personality. Yeah. Well, in, in 1991, uh, Keanu was in um, a, a few things. He was in Point Break, which we'll be talking about in a minute. He was in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, the sequel, and he was in My Own Private Idaho. He's actually, he's fantastic he's in My Own Private really, Idaho. He's really, really good in My Own Private Idaho. And I wish, I mean, I haven't really followed his career that much. You know, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't go see every Keanu Reeves movie that comes down the pipeline. But it's a he's, shame he's, that... He's one of those actors that hasn't really translated well into middle age. Yeah. And it's also a shame that he, I mean, he maybe he did keep making these kind of My Own Private Idaho type of films. But I think once he started doing these bigger budget um, action movies, those kind of fell by the wayside. And that's kind of a shame because I, I agree. He's really good in my own private Idaho. Yeah. It's, it's hard for an actor, especially one, you know, with a, a star the level of Keanu Reeves to keep doing smaller, more prestige projects at the same time that they're doing blockbusters. It kind of has to be one or the other. Yeah. You know, even somebody like Johnny Depp who resisted being a star for such a long time lately has just found himself in an endless series of Tim Burton and Gore Verbinski movies. Yeah, you can't get out of it. Um, but that's a hell of a year for an actor. I mean, those are three really good movies. And three very different movies. <laughs> very different movies. Um, if you had to rank those, wait, what would be your favorite of those three? Of those three? Yeah. Uh, my own private Idaho. Yeah. And then, and then probably Bogus Journey. Yeah, then Point Break. I, I think I agree with you. I, I, my own private Idaho is very great. We ran it for Metro Classics, and it was a, one of my favorite things that we ran there. So it's, I think it's one of... We need to talk about Gus Van Sant sometime, because he's really great when he wants to be. And I, you know, I just really like Gus <laughs> But anyway, that's, that's, that's a tangent, too. Um, Keanu, I think, is actually making his directorial debut... Uh, this year, he's he's made a movie called oh, Man, Man of Tai, of tai Chi. Chi. Yeah, I have not heard anything good about that. I don't think it's going to be good. Uh, I, I, you know, maybe uh, sometime we should watch that back to back with the Rizzo's Kung Fu movie. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, episode two thousand and eight or something. Yeah, that'll be fun. Yeah, so Keanu, I, you know, not a bad guy. No, he's he's an amiable movie star. He's a competent actor when used correctly. Yeah. Uh, often finds himself out of his element at times. Yeah. But, you know, he should be applauded for even taking a part in what you do about nothing, given his reputation as as the Bill and Ted guy. And I think I think he's I think he's um more self aware than people think he is. 
Yeah. You know, I think he knows of his limitations. Um, well, he's... He, you know, most most actors, I think, are, are either smarter or dumber than their screen persona. Like, if an actor seems smart on screen, most likely he's dumb as a doornail. <laughs> yeah. And vice versa. Kevin Spacey. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right. But, yeah, I think Keanu, I think, you know, there's an intelligence there that, you know is not in the characters that he plays very often, but I think, and I think he's also very kind of, at least he used to be somewhat adventurous where he, he often would go for these, um, that first wave of computer hacker movies or those movies that, you know, he seemed to have a real interest in that stuff. And I think he was really kind of ahead of the curve. And then it kind of all culminated in the matrix where it was a, you know, I haven't seen it, but you know, a a great movie marred with married with this, uh, you know, technology and stuff. Yeah, I think I think The Matrix is uh, you know I, if it's not his best performance, it's his most Keanu performance. Mm-hmm. Like it, it has like the most, it has the most of um, it has more of the things that make Keanu great than any of his other performances. Mm-hmm. So if like if you have never seen a Keanu Reeves movie, that would be the one to see. That's the one we'll show the aliens when they land, right? And they're like, "Who is this Keanu guy?" <laughs> no, they're gonna say, "Take us to your leader." And we'll say, "All right, he's the one. He's the one." <laughs> uh, well, with that, let's hear a little bit of Keanu from a clip from Point Break. I can't do this. Sure you can. Who knows? You might like it. It's a killer rush, buddy. This is your fucking wake up call, man. I am an FBI agent. I know, man. Any wild. <laughs> But you know, that's what makes it great, Johnny. We can exist on a different plane. We can make our own rules. Why be a servant to the law when you can be its master? Fucking A! I love this fucking job. Okay. 90 seconds door to door. It's a small price to pay for someone who loves you. She does, you know. It's not her style to fall so hard. I don't think she did with me. Mr. Carter, LBJ, Mr. Nixon. Well, sorry, Johnny. Looks like you don't get to be president. Okay, that was a clip from Point Break, Catherine Bigelow's 1991 film starring Keanu Reeves as a rookie FBI agent who um, is paired with Gary Busey, who plays, if you can believe it, the crackpot in the uh, department. Um, <laughs> and they team up to kind of uh, track down and infiltrate um, a group of rob- bank robbers um, who go by the name the ex-presidents because they wear masks uh, of Reagan and Nixon and LBJ. Uh, and... It turns out that they're surfers, and to go undercover, Keanu learns to surf with the help from Lori Petty, uh, which really tells you that this is 1991, Lori Petty's appearance here. Um, and basically, yeah, he he infiltrates them, they find out that he's, you know, a fed, and they kidnap Petty, and he needs to go along with their schemes, including robbing a bank with them, to get her back. And uh, the leader of the group is played by Patrick Swayze. Bodhi is the name of the character, and he's uh, the charismatic leader of the group, and everybody will follow him anywhere, even, you know, into the middle of the ocean in the middle of the night or out of a out of a plane at 30,000 feet. 
Yeah, plot-wise, it's not an interesting movie. No, there's not much to say about it. No, it's uh, what's what's interesting about it is is uh, is the cast and the kind of and the world and the the ideology behind the world that that Keanu finds himself in, and also the way that that Catherine Bigelow directs it. So let's let's start with the cast, and we should talk about Keanu because we were just talking about Keanu. How how is he as an FBI agent? <laughs> He is okay as an <laughs> FBI agent. No, it, I think he's, you know, he's he's fine. Um, I don't buy him for a second as a, as some guy that he's, uh, you know, made his way through the ranks and, and you know, became an FBI agent. I think he, he's built up as this kind of ultimate square that he he was the, the quarterback for Ohio State who, who hurt his knee and then he went to law school and joined the FBI and he's got like the close cropped hair and he does everything by the book but has no, you know, knowledge of the streets unlike, you know, Gary Busey who's a slob and does everything. Right. Haphazardly, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then he, you know, gradually learns to mellow out as he comes under the thrall of Patrick Swayze and these surfers, and he gets in touch with, like, nature man. Right, and that's where he sells it, you know. Yeah. I mean, I, I buy Keanu as a surfer. But not as, but a, not as, not as, not as a square. But that's okay. I mean, that's, you know, it's okay. in this movie, it works. It's fine, you know. I think, I think his dopiness works for both, for both aspects of the character. Sure. Um... And and then yeah, Busey's playing Busey. I mean, he, he's hilarious. Yeah, too. he's only got one mode, and it's Busey. And yeah. he's yeah, he's really great. He's got some great lines. I think my favorite line of his is, "This Calvin Hobbes strip is hilarious." <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, that's pretty great. Um, the the performance that really stood out to me though was was Patrick Swayze. He he makes the movie. He's fantastic. Yeah, he he is so good in this movie. And you know, I kind of missed it at the time. Patrick Swayze was like my sister's favorite actor. Mm-hmm. And I you know, I don't know that I've actually seen Point Break start to finish in the proper aspect ratio before before this week. Uh-huh. But I'd seen parts of it a lot because my sister would watch it every time it was on HBO. Mm-hmm. Uh then she would do the same with Dirty Dancing and and Ghost and there was a lot of Swayze in our household. Roadhouse? Not Roadhouse. She did not care for Roadhouse. Okay. I'm, I'm not exactly sure why. <laughs> maybe it just wasn't playing on, on HBO. or Maybe we can get her to chime in on this podcast. Give her a call. Perhaps. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. you know, at, at, the, at the time, Swayze was like a, a big star and he was a sex symbol. But I never really considered him much of an actor. And so watching Point Break, I, he's really good. He's phenomenal. He really is wonderful. And he, he, you buy him as, like I said, this charismatic leader of this group. Like, um, and he really, you know, he's got the uh, sun-bleached hair. Yeah, he's and, got the bleach blonde mullet. Yeah. It, you know, it's a very physical performance, and he's a very physical actor. He's a, you know, he's a good athlete. He's a dancer. It's also really verbal. He's always talking. He's constantly he just won't shut up about his you know dumbass philosophies of the world. And it's uh, Swayze makes it work. There's something you know kind of really entrancing about him. He has this this star charisma that he turns on the characters in the film, not just the audience. Yeah, and yeah, and uh, Keanu totally falls under his sway, even though he's trying to bust him, and he knows he's the villain. But and we all know he's the villain, but we all love him anyway. You know, um, for me, you know, I'm, I'm the same way as you. Like, I mean, I I don't I, I probably couldn't even rattle off five um, Swayze titles um, that I've seen, but 
to me, this is this is the movie I think of when I think of him. And in particular, I think of him jumping out of that airplane and the look on his face. And he really did jump out of that plane. I mean, he was a you know experienced skydiver. Yeah, they they go into that in, in detail on the on the special features. Like oh, he, he kept. Uh, going out on the weekends and, and skydiving just because he enjoyed doing it so much and the insurance companies were constantly trying to get him to stop <laughs> because if he got injured, you know, the, the movie would be ruined and right. it would cost them millions of dollars. But he could just kept doing it anyway. So so when it came time to fight to shoot that final shot, there was there was no stunt double. Bigelow was able to take it in just one take of Swayze himself jumping out of the airplane. Yeah, and to me the image that I will always think of when I think of Patrick Swayze now is that smile on his face as he's plummeting to the earth. And and it's just like a, a look of pure joy on his face. And, I mean, it, it just emanates off the screen onto you, and it's this warm glow. And I think he's just, he's really wonderful um, in this movie. Yeah, I, I agree. Now, um, to talk about his dumbass philosophy a bit, I think, uh, sure, there's a I think we need to go into that because... There's some dumbass stuff that we need to talk about beyond just that, um, but... Not, not just, we'll get to the adrenaline aspect later, because I, I think that comes in with, with Bigelow's approach to action filmmaking. Um, but I just want to talk about this idea of, of the counterculture and and the the relation of just kind of hippie aesthetic to this criminal subculture, which is, it's not unique to surfers or to hippies. You see it, uh, you know, we mentioned Rope when we were talking about John Dahl. It's the same kind of mentality is, is the... They are superior beings, so the laws don't really apply to them. And it's it's the same expression through this surfer ethic that laws are something from the straight world, and they've moved beyond that, you know. And money doesn't have value, and property doesn't have value, so it doesn't matter if you rob banks. Right. And Or so, kidnap ex-girlfriends and hold knives to their throats or whatever. Yeah, I want to. I want to talk about. The, <laughs> I want to talk about the girl. But before we get to that, you know, there's there's this aspect of the counterculture, but it's also there's also um, this kind of undercurrent of of Reaganism running throughout the film, and and uh, Swayze wears the Reagan mask, and towards the end of the film, he gives this this speech. He's constantly giving speeches. He gives a speech to Keanu about. Um, uh, as they're going to to rob the bank and the proper attitude to take because Swayze doesn't want to kill anyone, just like John Dahl and Gun Crazy. He doesn't want to hurt people. He just wants to take their stuff. And he tells Keanu that the, that the way you do that, the way you avoid violence when you're robbing a bank is to give this impression that you are willing to shoot them, that you have, that you create peace through strength by this overwhelming display of power, then people will cower before you. And if you hesitate, then that shows fear, and then people will act aggressively towards you. And that's exactly Ronald Reagan's approach to foreign policy throughout the 1980s. But it's coming out of the mouths of this hippie surfer guy. Right. Who Who is supposed to be the antithesis of, of Reaganism. And yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's... I, you know, I think the choice to have him wear the Reagan mask is in, intentional. And, um, you know, there's that indelible image of him in the Reagan mask um, torching the car, uh, right. their getaway car, with, with the, the makeshift flamethrower he makes out of the uh, gas pump, you know. Um, and it's a really, it's, it's a wonderful image. I mean, it's gorgeous to look at. And it, you know, I mean, you can read a lot into that image of, of Ronald, Ronald Reagan, Reagan burning, torching everything, yeah, in his torching path. everything in his path. I mean, you really can, and um, you know, it's a little over. It's 
like the movie, it's over the top, but it works. I mean, I think it's really well done there. Yeah, you know, and I, I think, I think this is fascinating. Like, I think the subtext of this movie is is amazing. I think the plot is pretty much awful. Plot is really bad. I, I kind of go, I kind of go with the plot for about two thirds of the way through the movie. Um, and I mean, as ridiculous as it is, but then there. There comes a point, and it's right after, and we'll talk about the chase, because we have to talk about the chase um, at some point, but it comes after that great chase that involves the Reagan uh, burning the car and stuff. When they get back to headquarters, and Gary Busey says to Reeves, you know, you've had a rough day, you should go home, take a nap. And Keanu says, okay, and he goes home, even though it's apparent that the guys that, you know, that he's infiltrated who know where he lives, uh, they know who he is now. He yes. still just goes home and takes a nap. And then, in the middle of the night, they knock on his door. He doesn't grab a gun. He doesn't go out the back door. He opens the front door and says, Hey, Bodie, come on in. And then, like, you know, and so everything after that is kind of where it starts to really strain credibility for me, at least because Keanu makes so many bad decisions yeah, pretty much everything that the FBI does is just idiotic right. in the movie. They have uh, John C. McGinley, who's hilarious. He was playing this this kind of parody, this caricature of the, the commanding officer. Is like, your butt's writing checks, your body can't cash, or whatever. Yeah, he, he, he says, uh, when I, one of the first lines in the movie is when Keanu shows up to the headquarters and... Uh, and he says to him, what, was there an asshole shortage or something? <laughs> I mean, he just has these lines. Yeah, that, and he's, he's he's really funny. Yeah. But he's just constantly yelling at them for no coherent reason. Uh, yeah. And there's, you know, a sequence in the middle of the film where, where the people, the, the surf gang that Keanu thinks are the bank robbers, uh, which include Anthony Kiedis from Red Hot Chili That's Peppers, right. Uh, turn out not to be. Um, and, you know, they've gone through and arrested them. But it turns out that one of them was an undercover DEA agent, Tom Sizemore. <laughs> yes, Tom Sizemore. I know. <laughs> and, you know, so they get yelled at for, for breaking up the DEA's undercover operation, which, you know, that happens in, in, in cop movies all the time because interagency cooperation is not, is not very good. But after that, McGinley is constantly yelling at Keanu for doing his job because he's undercover with the surfers. He's like, yeah. you're hanging out with these surfers all day. What are you and doing? Like, yeah. I'm an undercover FBI agent. <laughs> this is part of the job description. Right. Well, and Keanu and even McKinley says... Doesn't seem, McGinley doesn't seem to understand how undercover police operations work. Yeah. No, it's totally ridiculous. Um, yeah, he, he complains that Keanu brings his surfboard to work. And Ke- but Keanu even says at one point, like, I'm doing this all on my free time. Right. Like, hanging out with the surfers and stuff. Why is he mad at me? And it's like, yeah, why is he mad at you? Like, you're doing your job. Yeah, and after, you know, the, the robbery where, where Swayze has forced Keanu to, to go and join in the robbery, and Keanu does his best to break it up when, uh, like, an off-duty cop intervenes. He's like, I'm an undercover FBI agent, don't shoot. When eventually the cops come in, they arrest him and want to take him to jail. Yeah. Because yeah. he's an undercover FBI agent. Yeah, I know. No, it, yeah, it's... There are some really boneheaded things going on there. Yeah. But that's really, you know, it does kind of lower my uh, enjoyment of the movie a little bit because those things really irk me, you know, yeah. when I watch it. Even though they're not supposed to, you're supposed to just go along for I, I don't think this is a case of, of like, the plausibles. Right. This is just dumb. It's this, exactly, is, this is just bad plotting. It's just bad, yeah. 
Um, and bad decisions, and yeah, I totally agree with you on that. But it's not it's not what the movie is about. No. So, and you know, it, it doesn't bother me in that sense, because, you know, when I think of the movie, I'm not going to think about John, John, you know, McGinley's poorly motivated <laughs> parody of, a, of an FBI captain. You know, I'm going to think about Patrick Swayze, and I'm going to think about the action scenes. So let's talk about the action scenes, because this is Catherine Bigelow's forte. She is an action director. And we've talked, you know, we've talked a lot about uh, Hong Kong action movies uh, before. We haven't really talked about an American one. So tell me what you think. I think Bigelow's uh, a very strong uh, director when it comes to action stuff, just based solely on this movie. As I said, I, I haven't seen much of her other work. But um, to me, I mean, well, there's a number of, of, of scenes, but the the real set piece in this movie is that chase when Busey and Reeves kind of bungle their uh, stakeout of, of a bank that is robbed by the ex-presidents, but they don't notice it until the ex-presidents are leaving. Because Busey has sent Keanu out for two meatballs. Two meatballs, yeah, two meatball subs <laughs> and a lemonade. And, uh, and so it's kind of botched when they see them and Keanu starts firing and, and they, there's a car chase, which is pretty fun, you know, it's um, through a parking lot and it's tight and it, it's pretty fun. And then the cars inevitably crash and then it's basically Keanu chasing uh, Swayze um, through LA, and um, I think the pinnacle of the movie is that they, they're running through these back alleys and stuff, and they, they crash over um, like a fence, a backyard fence, and Swayze runs into this house and has enough time to close the sliding door and lock it. And yeah, then, and he, he, he slowly locks it. Like yeah, he takes like his time. Like it's comical. Yeah, and then Keanu is. <laughs> running through and he throws the flower pot or whatever through the thing and bursts in the room but the best part is he comes crashing through this house and he runs out onto the porch where Swayze is holding a pit bull that he throws onto Keanu Reeves in what must be the coolest thing I've ever seen I mean I was like did he just throw a pit bull on him um, and it's great and, it, and, and then they run and they end up in the ravine the LA ravine yeah. And uh, Keanu has a bad leg from football, um, and so the the chase ends because Keanu does this large drop and he hits his you know lands wrong and he injures his knee. Um, and that this is an iconic shot that is actually um, referenced in Hot Fuzz, Edgar Wright's Hot Fuzz, which right. uses a lot of uh, you know early '90s action cinema cliches. And, and um, Keanu's on the ground and he he's gonna fire at Swayze. But he just can't bring himself to do it because you know he he's kind of mesmerized he's by this guy. His spell. So he turns and he fires into the air <laughs> and he goes no and he just <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah, that, <laughs> uh, it's just fantastic. Relative to Hong Kong movies, Hollywood Hollywood gets a bad rap, especially nowadays. It's very trendy to bash Hollywood movies, and and I am perfectly willing to do that. Uh, sure. Movies like the the Paul Greengrass, you know, Bourne movies, I, I can't stand the kind of, you know, fast cutting, so you can't see that the actors can't actually do anything. Uh, I think I think Bigelow is is vastly superior to that, while still working within the Hollywood system that is more editing based than than a longer take. Sure. Uh, tradition, you know, from the Shaw Brothers in the seventies. Yeah, this is this is cut very fast, but you always have a sense of where people are in relation to you know their environment. Which is which is how the Shaw Brothers work actually, because you know there's a lot of a lot of editing in, in Hong Kong movies, but it's it's coherent editing. It's editing to to show things as opposed to editing to hide things. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so it's not about the length of the shots or the the pace of the edits. It's about you know the information on the screen and whether it can be read by the audience. Uh, now this this action sequence is is just phenomenal. You know it's shot with a, a steady cam, and I think uh, they said that at one time they like put the camera on a on a on a pole so they could like raise it up over the fences and and everything and and. The camera runs um, behind the actors. It runs in front of them, and it's it. They are constantly running through these really tight, ever you know, constricting spaces, and it's just it's so much fun and it's so exciting. Yeah, to see it's it's it might be my favorite Hollywood action sequence. <laughs> it's really freaking good. Like it, it is right up there. Yeah, no, it's. I mean, I can't say enough good things about that action sequence. And there are other other sequences too in the movie um, that work, but but that really is the true set piece of the film. Yeah, a lot. You know, the heist sequences are are a lot more just kind of cutting for the sake of cutting. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting in in Biglow's later movies, she's much more restrained. They're much the they're more suspenseful in uh, Zero Dark Thirty and in in The Hurt Locker. They're kind of long sequences built out of building suspense to an explosion. Sure. Literally in. in in most cases, uh, that that's not what what she's going after in in Point Break, but it's kind of starting at the same point uh, and going in a different direction. And another director who's working around the same time as as Bigelow in the in the late eighties and early nineties is Tony Scott, who in, in nineteen ninety one is kind of in the same place that she is, and he goes off in a totally different direction where he takes the editing to you know extreme beyond beyond you know even what what Paul Greengrass has done in in that Tony Scott's using the the fast cutting and the the uh, you know changes in film stock and, and color to expressive purpose as opposed uh, to obfuscating right action right Tony Scott's after something else entirely he, his action movies are not about the action so much as they are about like the images mm-hmm. you smashed up against each other so you know it's interesting to me that like the same source in, in early late eighties early nineties can go in two wildly different directions twenty years later. Certainly, yeah, yeah. Well, and also you know talking about you know you don't want to necessarily bring up James Cameron when you're talking about uh, Catherine Bigelow because it's yeah. a little too easy or whatever. Um, but they you know they were collaborators for a long time. They were they were married. Cameron was a uh, an executive producer on Point Break. And I've always said that I think. Cameron is also really great with um, filming action coherently, and you even see it in uh, Avatar, um, which, if anything... The best thing about Avatar is is the construction of its action sequences. Yeah, it's really well done, and and you're right. American cinema of the last two decades or so, the examples of really good action editing and, and, and footage, it, it's, it's few and far between. But yeah, there are people that have done it, and, and they should be praised for it, because it's, it, it's hard to do. Yeah. You know? And uh, the, the guy I blame more than anybody else for the disastrous turn that, that Hollywood action filmmaking has taken over the last 20 years is the guy who was originally slated to direct Point Break, Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott, Tony's brother. He's a monster. Yeah, Ridley, I, I don't know too much about Ridley Scott stuff, Um and I'm, I'm not really interested <laughs> to know more. Um, but yeah, I... I, I, I Any, anything after, you know, maybe Legend. It's just terrible. Yeah, and well, I mean, you know, you said Greengrass, and, and uh, I think Christopher Nolan is, is also in this camp, particularly in his Batman movies, where it just it's just... Uncomfortable. Christopher Nolan, I think, I think... I think Paul Greengrass actually thinks he's... he's 
I think there's a method to Paul Greengrass's madness. I just don't like. I just don't like it in practice. Like mm-hmm. I, I think I think he's cutting the way he is for an expressive purpose. I just don't think that that method is very good at, at achieving that purpose. I, mm-hmm. I don't think it works. Christopher Nolan, I think, just does not care about spatial coherence and thinks that he, you know, just through the sheer force of of the bludgeoning power of his cinema and Hans Zimmer's score, <laughs> can make the trick the audience into thinking that they are enjoying an action sequence. When really it's just a bunch of nonsense. It's it, Chris. That's that. <laughs> that should be the tagline to every Christopher Nolan movie: a whole bunch of nonsense. Yeah, I, I, I've seen a lot of Christopher Nolan movies, and I've never left one not feeling like somebody had been pounding on my head for two and a half hours. Well, there's not a lot of action in like The Prestige, but I know what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> it's the same bludgeoning mentality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, it, it's a steamroller effect, and it, it doesn't work for me at all. A couple more things I'd like to say about this movie. Um, I think the editing, I, I think in the beginning, I also really like, um, in the credit sequence, it's really awesome, the, these idyllic slow-motion shots of a surfer, like with the blue sky and the blue waves in the curl of a wave, and it, and it really sets the scene very well, and then... She cuts to Keanu at the uh, training ground for FBI in the rain, which kind of foreshadows the ending of the film. Um, and he's, you know, rolling in the mud, shooting, um, you know, with a shotgun, these targets. And then it goes back to this guy, like, you know, riding the curl or whatever, and then back to Keanu, like, fast-cutting. I think that's a perfect summation of the movie right there, just in that, you know, two-minute opening sequence of the film. Yeah, uh, we kind of we kind of touched on Laurie Petty's character. Oh, right, yeah. And uh, uh, watching the the special features, uh, a lot of the people were like, "Yeah, Catherine Bigelow was not a you know expected choice to direct this movie because it's an action movie, but because she's a woman, she brought so much like nuance to the character because she <laughs> understands like the emotions at the heart of it." And yeah, I'm watching this movie, and there are no nuances to the emotions at the heart of this, and. You know, Catherine Bigelow is as, you know, if you want to use these kind of essentialist language, Catherine Bigelow is as, as a masculine a filmmaker as there ever has been in Hollywood. Absolutely. And the Laurie Petty character has, you know, she starts out okay, but it's mostly just because she's basically a man. Yeah. But yeah. at the end of the film, she is the. You know the you know whiny damsel in distress, and she's even you know all through the whole film she's wearing jeans, she's surfing. In the final shot, she's wearing like this white slip, yeah, which she would never wear in actuality. But you know that's how she is in the conception of the the film's plot. Absolutely, yeah, Uh, yeah. Her character, if you want to call it that, yeah, she just serves. You know, she's a plot point, really. Um, and she's the MacGuffin, in a way, you know, for the final uh, she, the she, it, The only reason the character exists, honestly, is to confirm that Keanu Reeves is heterosexual. Sure. And it doesn't really work. No, because, I mean, yeah. Because you're right. She doesn't really show any sign of, of being... Well... Anything really? I mean, like I was gonna say, of being feminine or being a woman or whatever. Which who cares about that? But yeah, she's kind of a blank slate, really. All we know is her parents were killed, and then he's like, "I'm gonna use this to get you know." <laughs> right. Well, you know, she's like, she's like the, she's the Lori Petty. She's the right. the tough, you know, tomboy right. chick, which is which is kind of the part that she played throughout the, 
you know, the late 80s and early 90s. Um, and she's great at that. She's very good at being Laurie Petty. But it doesn't fit in the movie. Like, because it doesn't confirm that Keanu's heterosexuality because she is so boyish. Right. But then she's not allowed to be anything but the helpless woman at the end of the film. Yeah. Yeah, it would have been nice to see her at any point really assert herself um, in this movie, even early on. But, um, you know, at first she doesn't want to take on training him in surfing or whatever, you know, and then he gives her the sob story and she says, okay. And then, you know, like she really doesn't show any sign of, uh, you know, say or, or anything like that. Um, I would like to say, speaking of petty, uh, I, I do live with a librarian who did a little reference work for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she discovered after we, it, actually, I would like to say as an aside, Point Break, this is how good of a movie Point Break is. Uh, I was going to watch this by myself. A couple nights ago, uh, while my girlfriend was going to do other things in the house, tidying her office and, you know, doing other things. And doing I, the housework. Doing Play the housework, game. yeah, as, as she should be doing. Uh, <laughs> and I said, I'm going to watch, you know, Point Break. She said, okay, I'm going to do my own thing. Uh, and she, she just sat down on the couch for, for, as the movie started, watched the entire thing with me. No... No, you know, she was like hooked, and and it's it's you know it's a great because movie. of Lori Petty or because of Swayze and Keanu. Uh, it, I think it was Anthony Kiedis. Ah. Yeah. By the way, Anthony Kiedis or Flea as an actor, who do you pick? Flea, all the way. Flea is so good in the Back to the Future trilogy. He's so good. There, <laughs> <laughs> there's a, a neat little anecdote on the on the uh, the special features from the stunt coordinator talking about how. You know, they wanted the actors to, like, do some of their actual stunts. So, uh-huh. that, um, so on on a weekend, he, like, had them all over to his house, and he was going to, like, show them, like, some basic fighting moves so they could do that scene where, where Anthony Kiedis' gang, you know, beats up Keanu. Right. Uh, and everyone showed up except for Anthony Kiedis. Mm. So then when Monday came around and it was time to do the, the, the fight scene, they had him punch Anthony Kiedis, like, first thing and get him, have him knocked out immediately. <laughs> And after that, uh, Kiedis showed up for all of the events. He made sure to ah, to, to make it there to be there for practice. <laughs> well, there you go. So anyway, the, uh, my girlfriend did a little research out of the movie, and two things she discovered uh, looking at the IMDb pages for some of the people in the film. Lori Petty, a couple years later, appeared on a TV show called Lush Life, where she played the character Georgia or George Sanders. Interesting. Yeah, very interesting. And the gentleman that played Roach in the film, who is the last of, uh, of Swayze's gang yeah, to make LaRose. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, uh, the year after this, was in a movie called Gun Crazy. Interesting. <laughs> Tying it all together. Yeah, he was in uh, Girls. That's what I heard. Season one. There you go. Yep, so right. I think it was in Drugstore Cowboy, too. No. Speaking, Speaking of, of Gus Van Yeah. The last thing I need to say about this movie um, is kind of summed up in the fact that Keanu discovers that the the surfing group that he is hanging out with are the are the robbers by recognizing the ass, the bare ass of one of them. And I think cinema is kind of missing something in the last 20 years where we don't get something that awesome anymore <laughs> where Keanu can be walking down the beach, see a bare man's ass and say, "I got to go." And he turns around and he heads out. It's great. Well, that's police work for you. That's right. That's that's what he went to school for. Um, on that note, that is Point Break. Uh, we're going to listen to some more Broken Strings with the song Surfing Every Day. 
right, that's our show for this week. Next week, in conjunction with the Slapstick Savants series going on at the Sif Cinema Uptown. <laughs> that's a, a very sibilant title. Uh, we are going to be talking about Ishtar. We're going to be talking about Laurel and Hardy's Sons of the Desert. We will be discussing our essential slapstick films and the Marx Brothers. Yeah, we'll talk about the career of the Marx Brothers, which I am very much looking forward to. If you are in Chicago this coming uh, Wednesday, uh, speaking of Lori Petty in the early 90s, um, Michael Phillips and Steve Rosenblum are going to be hosting a screening of uh, A League of Their Own, Penny Marshall's film, which I think is... A classic. I I love that movie. I, I could watch that movie every six months till I die. Um, and so that's playing August 21st at the Music Box. So if you get a chance, go see it. It's great. And if you're in London, you need to go check out the Sat Egypt Ray series that's just starting on the uh, at the BFI Southbank Theater. They're all through the end of the month are playing a whole bunch of Ray's movies. And he's probably, you know, one of the, uh, the world filmmakers I, I need to see more of most. Me too. I've only seen The Music Room and I loved it. The Music Room The Music Room is terrific. Uh, Criterion's putting out, they, they put out The Music Room, which is how I saw it. They're also, uh, I think this week, it just came really out. I've seen uh, Charlotta and Mahanagar, aka The Big City, uh, both of which I've also seen and both of which are also phenomenal. But I think that those are the only Ray movies I've seen. So do you so, think Criterion's The Apu trilogy is on its way? I hope so. Yeah. Uh, supposedly, you know, Pather Panchali is is it's the highest rated movie on like the the um, they shoot pictures, don't they? Top one thousand list. Uh, Pather Panchali is the the highest rated one that I haven't seen yet, mm. um, and also in like the sight and sound list, I think that's that's like the number one that I need to see. Uh, but also, you know, Aparhito, the world of Apu, you know, so on and on. They're all they're playing them all. Well, probably not all of them, but they're playing a whole bunch of them. At the BFI South Bank in London, so get your plane ticket. I'm working on it. <laughs> I I'd love to go to that. It would be really great. So you can always find us uh, on the internet's uh, Geo Sanders Show uh, on Twitter, um, and our website is thegeorgesandersshow.blogspot.com. Uh, once again, you can email us at thegeorgesandershow at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your feedback on the show, or if you have a film or two to recommend for our upcoming Top 10 show, feel free. Or, you know, you just want to contribute your whole Top 10 list. Yeah, we'll take it. Make fun of it. It's cool. Once again, I want to thank uh, Broken Strings for the music this show. Um, you can find more information on that somewhere on the internet. It was put out by True Panther. I think it's out of print. Uh, I think they only released uh, about 500 on vinyl, but it's really awesome stuff, so track it down. They don't print music anymore. It's all... <laughs> it's, it's all, all digitized. In the, in the cloud. Ones and zeros. And I think that's about it, so we're going to send it away to uh, George Sanders. Just a kiss, a sigh is just a sigh. The fundamental things apply as time goes by. And when two lovers woo, they still say, I love you. 
On that you can rely No matter what the future brings As time goes by Moonlight and love songs Never out of day Hearts full of passion Jealousy and hate Woman needs man And man must have his mate That no one can deny It's still the same old story A fight for love and glory A case of do or die The world 